you're listening to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles, a product of Lee Enterprises. I'm Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager here at Lee and the host of the show. With Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles, we are presenting notable true crime stories as reported by journalists for the dozens of various Lee Enterprises-owned publications around America. For this set of episodes, we'll be traveling to Wilbur, Nebraska, where in November of 2017, 24-year-old Sydney Loof left work to go on a second date with a person she met on a dating app and never came home. The events that followed, centering on eventually convicted suspects Aubrey Trail and Bailey Boswell, were bizarre in the way that they unfolded both on social media and in the courtroom. What you're about to hear is the second episode in a four-part series, so if you're new here, jump back to part one which is all about Sydney Loof, and get up to speed. The articles that you'll hear have been lightly edited to avoid redundancies, etc., and they'll be read by Matt McGrath. We'll have links to those in the show notes, as well as contact info. After the articles, you'll hear an interview with Dave Bundy and Todd Henricks, the editor and city editor, respectively, at the Lincoln Journal Star. Dave and Todd were on the editorial floor when every aspect of this story was breaking. It's a great conversation that touches on aspects of journalistic integrity, and we examine the push and pull of newsworthiness versus the platforming of bad faith actors. So please stick around to the end to listen to that. As always, if you appreciate what we're doing with this program, or any other true crime podcast for that matter, we encourage you to invest in local journalism and support whichever newspaper it is that serves your community. Our episode begins after this break. November 28, 2017. Two sought in disappearance of Sidney Loof, Lincoln police say, by Riley Johnson for the Lincoln Journal Star. Lincoln police are looking for two people in connection with the disappearance of 24-year-old Sidney Loof. Police describe Aubrey Trail, 51 years of age, and Bailey M. Boswell, 23 years of age, as persons of interest in the investigation. Chief Jeff Blymeister declined to comment on how the two might be connected with Loof's disappearance. Bailey Boswell and Aubrey Trail are two people that we need to speak with, and we believe they have additional information concerning Sydney's whereabouts, Blymeister told reporters Tuesday morning. Investigators working in Lincoln, Omaha, Wilbur, and elsewhere in Nebraska have conducted interviews and followed the digital footprints Loof left behind. Blymeister said investigators continue to analyze the cell phone activity social media messages, and electronic transactions connected with the case. A police spokeswoman said Trail and Boswell recently lived in Wilbur, but Blymeister said the two have ties to several other states. The department provided surveillance photos of the two, apparently taken in the same place, but didn't say when or where the images were from. Court records show Trail reported a recent address of an apartment in Wilbur. Last week, Saline County Attorney Ted Eichmann obtained an arrest warrant for Trail, accusing him of being a felon in possession of a firearm between September 1st and November 20th, 2017. The warrant includes a habitual criminal charge because Trail has previous felony convictions in Nebraska for forgery and issuing bad checks. Trail previously lived in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and Falls City, Nebraska court records show. Boswell reported in court records in 2016 that she lived in the Missouri towns of Trenton and Milan. 
Captain Jeff Booker is leading the search for Luf and working with the Saline County Sheriff's Department, Nebraska State Patrol, U.S. Marshals Service, and the FBI. Between Captain Booker and Saline County Sheriff Alan Moore, Blymeister told reporters, I assure you we are making every effort to locate Sydney, and we will continue to do so until she is found. A friend and co-worker said she hopes people continue sharing images of Luf, Trail, and Boswell until they are found. Terry Gehrig said she knew immediately that something was wrong when she heard Luf, her friend of five years and co-worker at Menards, was a no-show. Sydney was known as a super polite, caring cashier with a very good heart, Gehrig said, adding, she's the kind of person the world needs more of. She and Luf had just texted the day before when Luf said she was going on a second date with a woman she knew as Audrey. Sydney didn't tell Gehrig much about their plans, but mentioned that this was her dream girl and that she was excited for the night's date. After Luf was reported missing, Gehrig was shown a photo of Boswell, who she now believes to be Audrey. November 29th, 2017. Still looking. Investigators scour ponds, creeks, as search for Sydney Loof continues. By Riley Johnson for the Lincoln Journal Star. Investigators scoured ponds and creek beds in two counties Wednesday as their search for Sydney Loof continued, capping a hectic day that began with a bizarre video post by two people described as persons of interest in the case. Police said they are still looking for Loof as well as Aubrey Trail and Bailey Boswell, who posted a video to Facebook denying their involvement. Blows my mind, said Tom Cassidy, Lincoln's public safety director, asked how the video compares with what he's seen over four decades in law enforcement. Closest analogy I can make would be the access reporters sometimes got to interview criminal suspects in the pre-1963 era. The FBI and Lincoln Police Chief Jeff Blymeister are expected to give an update on the case during a press conference Thursday morning at the Hall of Justice in Lincoln. Volunteer firefighters drained a pond near their apartment and Wilbur Clatonia Public Schools, wading through the water with shovels as a skid loader moved dirt from the banks. Their efforts continued into the night. Crews also checked nearby creeks and other areas in Saline and Gage counties. Police said they have received an overwhelming number of tips from across the country via social media and phone calls. Sands, the police spokeswoman, said she had to assign an intern to help sort through them. Sands wouldn't say whether police believe Trail and Boswell remain in Nebraska. Surveillance footage of the two, shared by Lincoln police, appeared to show them at a casino. The woman in the Facebook video said she had made plans with Loof to visit the casino after their last date. Both Trail and Boswell were known to Lincoln area antiques dealers, one said the pair picked up a paycheck November 15th, the same day Luf was last seen. A manager at one dealer said Trail had been a customer for many years, coming and going infrequently, most recently about a month ago. Staff at another antique mall said the pair rented several display cabinets to sell vintage glassware and toys beginning in June. People at the antique malls asked not to be identified, citing concerns for the safety of their employees. Loof's disappearance remained the focus of discussion Wednesday all over Wilbur, a town of 1800. A woman with binoculars watched from her front porch as firefighters checked the pond. Businesses across town had missing person signs posted in their windows, including one on the door of Casey's convenience store. Inside the Wilbur meat market, the Facebook video drove conversation and the TV was tuned to the Lincoln News. It actually makes you sick thinking that an innocent person, a life, is in jeopardy, said owner Terry Hynek. I hope they find her safe, and the answer is elsewhere. November 29th, 
2017. Investigators scouring Celine Gage. Persons of interest in Sydney Loof disappearance deny involvement by Riley Johnson for the Lincoln Journal Star. Two people identifying themselves as the persons of interest in the case of Sydney Loof's disappearance have posted a video denying their involvement in her disappearance. They're chasing us around like dogs, a man who identified himself as Trail says in the video, which was shared on the Finding Sydney Loof Facebook page Wednesday morning. The video, which was removed after about two hours but has since been posted on YouTube, shows a man and a woman who identifies herself as Boswell sitting inside a vehicle. Investigators are analyzing the video, and it's too early for us to provide a statement, a Lincoln police spokeswoman said. We are still looking for both of them, and they have not turned themselves in, Officer Angela Sands said. In the video, the man says he and Boswell tried reaching out to police in the days following Loop's disappearance, but that police didn't return their calls. As far as I know, I'm not wanted for anything. I'm a person of interest, and I'm not really running from anything, the man says. This has pretty much cost me my life. I pray for Sydney. I hope she's found soon. I wish the family the best. I'm sorry that she wasn't with you on Thanksgiving. The woman says she went on dates with Loop in the days before her disappearance, but last saw her after dropping her off at a friend's house. Trail's basement apartment in Wilbur is just across a chain-link fence from Wilbur Clatonia Public Schools. Superintendent Ray Collins said law enforcement has had a heavy presence in the area since soon after Loop's disappearance. Investigators searched the apartment Tuesday, Collins said. November 30th, 2017. Sydney Loof disappearance. Father pleads for help in search as investigators try to question persons of interest. By Lori Pilger and Riley Johnson for the Lincoln Journal Star. Sydney Loof's father gave an impassioned plea for help finding her Thursday, moments after law enforcement apprehended two people they described as persons of interest in her disappearance. In my opinion, someone knows something, George Loof told reporters during a news conference in the Hall of Justice in Lincoln. Please do the right thing. Lincoln Police Chief Jeff Blymeister answered quickly when asked if there is still hope she could be found alive. Yes, the chief said, absolutely. Persons of interest, Aubrey Trail and Bailey Boswell, were being held without bond early Friday at the Taney County Jail in Forsyth, Missouri, about five miles northeast of Branson, according to online jail records. Randy Thies, special agent in charge of the FBI field office in Omaha, said the FBI is still seeking information from the public on Loop's whereabouts and the investigation, describing the search as a very fluid situation. Trail and Boswell were arrested on warrants unrelated to Loop's disappearance, Blymeister said. Jail records indicated both were booked on federal holds. The two did not turn themselves into law enforcement, the chief told the Journal Star on Thursday, despite Trail saying in a video posted on social media overnight that he and Boswell had pretty much decided to come forward. Blymeister declined to say whether the videos helped law enforcement track down the pair. He said investigators had received written correspondence that they believed was authored by Boswell and that they are analyzing it and comparing it with other statements she made over the phone to a Lincoln investigator. Investigators from Lincoln, the Saline County Sheriff's Office, and the FBI arrived at Trail and Boswell's location around 2 p.m. Thursday, hoping to learn whether the two could provide additional information to aid in the search for Loof, Blymeister said. There was no word late Thursday as to whether they were cooperating. Investigators were also evaluating digital information they continue to receive from telecommunication providers. They intend to use that information along with whatever can be gleaned from interviews with Trail and Boswell to direct future search efforts. The primary focus is on finding Sydney, the chief said. In Neely, where George Loof is a high school principal and his wife Susie is a resource teacher, 
Community members rallied around the family, selling buttons and planning to wear green at the Neely, Oakdale, and Ewing basketball game Thursday night to raise awareness about the case. Blymeister said local and federal law enforcement have been working diligently to find Cindy Loof since her mom reported her missing November 16th after she missed work at Menards in North Lincoln. Police have said Loof was last seen in Wilbur the night of November 15th. Searches in the Wilbur and Clatonia areas this week did not turn up any new evidence that could lead to where Loof might be, Blymeister said. He said a rumor that Loof's cell phone was found buried in a yard near where Trail and Boswell live is not true. Police publicly identified Trail and Boswell as persons of interest in the case earlier this week. Since then, the pair have posted at least three videos on social media denying any role in Loof's disappearance. In a 10-minute video posted overnight Wednesday, Trail dismissed several theories that circulated on social media after Trail, 51 years of age, and Boswell, 23 years of age, were named by police. Not saying I'm a nice guy, I'm a crook. I'm a thief, have been all my life, okay? But I'm not what you're trying to make me out to be, he said. Thursday, Boswell was being held on a misdemeanor warrant for missing a court date last year in Lincoln, where she was accused of possessing less than one ounce of marijuana and drug paraphernalia. And Trail was being held on a newly filed case in Saline County, where he's accused of being a habitual criminal and a felon in possession of a firearm. Prosecutors asked to file the affidavit for Trail's arrest warrant under seal, due to the sensitive nature of these matters and the likelihood that individuals who are key witnesses or additional participants in this matter may flee the state of Nebraska if this matter is disclosed. Even now that investigators have located the pair, these said law enforcement officials are working any and all information about where Cindy Loof could be. We are all committed and we are applying all of our resources to help bring Cindy home, he said. December 1st, 2017. Persons of Interest in Sydney Loof Disappearance in Custody in Nebraska by Lori Pilger and Riley Johnson for the Lincoln Journal-Star. Two people identified by law enforcement as persons of interest in Sydney Loof's disappearance remained in custody Friday, now at a Saline County jail in their hometown of Wilbur. A jail employee confirmed that Aubrey Trail, 51 years of age, and Bailey Boswell, 23 years of age, were both being held late Friday at the request of the U.S. Marshals Service. The two were transported from the Taney County Jail in Forsyth, Missouri, about five miles northeast of Branson, sometime Friday. Loof, 24 years of age, remains missing. Federal and state court records list no new charges against Trail or Boswell, and police haven't publicly accused them of any crime related to Loof's disappearance. Thursday, Loof's father pleaded for the public's help during a news conference at the Hall of Justice in Lincoln. In my opinion, someone knows something, George Loof said. Please do the right thing. He was joined by officials from the FBI, Lincoln Police Department, Saline County Sheriff's Office, and the Nebraska State Patrol. Lincoln Police Chief Jeff Blymeister responded quickly during the news conference when asked if there is still hope Loof could be found alive. Yes, the chief said, absolutely. December 3rd, 2017. Search for Sidney Loof highlights balance of transparency, strategy for law enforcement. By Riley Johnson for the Lincoln Journal-Star. Social media posts have opened a window into the search for Sidney Loof in a way unlike any missing persons investigation authorities have worked in the past, said a former FBI special agent. Wayson Dunn, who led the FBI's Omaha division from 2009 to 2012, said a Snapchat photo posted by Loof before November 15th, the last day she was seen, 
gave a glimpse of her circumstances before her disappearance. Last week, two persons of interest identified in the case posted videos to Facebook denying involvement in Luke's disappearance. A decade ago, such statements would have been made to friends or family or in a manifesto to the media. Aspects of it are playing out in the public eye that you normally wouldn't be seeing, said Dunn, who worked for the FBI for 30 years. Now approaching its third week, the search for Luf has intensified. Investigators have searched a Wilbur home where the two people of interest lived and where Luf was last seen. Law enforcement scoured creek beds and other areas outside Wilbur and Clatonia. And the FBI has set up a dedicated tip line to aid the federal and local task forces search to find the five foot seven blonde, known as a polite caring cashier at Menards in North Lincoln. Her case is one of more than 2,200 missing persons cases worked by Lincoln Police this year, an agency spokeswoman said. Though most are open and shut cases of runaways and those running from warrants, 2% are not found, former LPD investigator Sergeant Luke Wilk told the Journal Star last year for a series on the city's missing persons. Law enforcement officials acknowledge these investigations can be a balancing act, where they juggle aiding awareness about the person with protecting the integrity of their search. On social media, people curious about Luke's case clamor for more details about the hours before her disappearance and what investigators have recovered in their search. But FBI officials and Lincoln Police Chief Jeff Blymeister said this week the primary mission driving their investigation is finding Luke. All of these other things are strategies to meet that end, Blymeister said in an interview. If we are guarded in our release of information, it is being looked at through the lens of if this is released, will it help find Sydney? Lincoln Police, the FBI, the U.S. Marshals Service, Nebraska State Patrol, and Sullivan County Sheriff's Office held a news conference last week to stress the need for continued awareness and diligence in the search for Luf. The combined efforts appear to done to show that the case is headed in the right direction, he said. It indicates this investigation is being pursued appropriately and aggressively, he said. FBI investigators don't often get involved in missing persons cases, but will extend the agency's support in certain cases, he said. The agency gets involved immediately in kidnappings where there is a belief the suspect and victim may have crossed the state lines because of its nationwide jurisdiction, he said. FBI agents monitor other kidnappings where evidence of interstate travel is not known, he said. For possible kidnapping cases involving children younger than 12, the agency launches an investigation automatically, he said. When the FBI joins a missing persons investigation, it brings a host of resources, including its forensic evidence analysts, its specialized computer analysts, and behavioral analysts often known for their profiles that help guide investigators, he said. The FBI brings the ability to cover the entire world, Dunn said. The agency joins or aids missing person investigations often enough that it's not unusual, he said. Unlike the drama seen in TV shows and movies, local and federal investigators work well together under their collaborative leaders, Dunn said. Special Agent Randy Thies, who now heads the FBI's Omaha Division, said ongoing investigation precludes investigators from releasing many details on Luke's case. But investigators ask for the public's patience as they continue their search, Thies said. We stand shoulder to shoulder with our law enforcement partners, and we're all committed, and we are all applying all of our resources to help bring Sydney home, these told reporters Thursday. December 5th, 2017. From the start, LOOF investigators looked for electronic breadcrumbs. By Lori Pilger for the Lincoln Journal Star. From the start of the search for Sydney LOOF, 
Lincoln police turned to the 24-year-old cell phone, hoping it would send them the electronic breadcrumbs they needed to find her, the so-called digital footprint. At news conferences, Lincoln Police Chief Jeff Plymeister used the term to describe the work investigators were doing, first to try to find Luke, then two persons of interest in her disappearance. The police chief referenced cell phones, social media, and debit or credit cards November 28th. Those are all different avenues we are looking at and should be looking at in order to identify where Sydney was, where Bailey Boswell and Aubrey Trail may be. Blymeister called it a valuable component of the investigation. Last Thursday, he said it led to Boswell's and Trail's arrests. Tuesday, he said it led to finding Luth's remains in Clay County. Larry Barksdale, a former Lincoln police investigator who retired in 2012 with more than 40 years' experience, said Tuesday the same way shipping companies can track online purchases and trucking firms can keep tabs on semi-trailers, so too do law enforcement use digital information to help investigations. But for law enforcement to get the information, a judge has to review the process and approve warrants, said Barksdale, who now teaches forensic science at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He said a digital footprint includes cell phones. It also includes information from online apps such as Facebook, Twitter, and Snapchat, from credit card purchases or ATM visits, and from cameras along the state's highways, outside gas stations, or inside businesses. Barksdale said. Years ago, police used to get warrants for landline phone records to help them manually piece together dates and times and who called whom. He said digital evidence is like police years ago finding a fingerprint. Unless there's some other explanation how it got there, it can be an important link for investigators. But it still takes manpower to organize and digest what's important, Barksdale said. In the Luth case, he said, videos posted by Trail and Boswell denying their involvement in her disappearance had to be a big help. Investigators finally had their faces and words to analyze. Barksdale said cases always come down to two things, physical evidence, including the digital evidence, and people talking. Usually it's not just one thing. It's a lot of little pieces that all start coming together. December 6th, 2017. This is not your typical case. Saline County Attorney says of investigation into Sydney Loof's death by Lori Pilger for the Lincoln Journal Star. A week after federal officers arrested two people in connection to the disappearance of a 24-year-old Lincoln woman found dead Monday in rural Clay County, the two have yet to be charged or brought before a judge. This is not your typical case, Saline County Attorney Tad Eichmann said Wednesday. He said Aubrey Trail and Bailey Boswell both are being held in the jail in Wilbur on a federal person of interest warrant in the disappearance of Sidney Loof, who was last seen November 15th after going on a date with Boswell, who she met through the dating app Tinder. Trail, 51 years of age, and Boswell, 23 years of age, lived in Wilbur but left town after Loof went missing. Federal officers arrested them November 30th in the Branson, Missouri area. Four days later, on Monday, searches in the Clay County found Luth's body. Investigators are working diligently on putting a picture together to determine what happened and who was behind it. That's the biggest part we're working on right now, Pullen said. In Wilbur, Eichmann said he's waiting for the entire investigative process to progress some more. Last month, he charged Trail, a convicted felon and alleged habitual criminal, with illegally possessing a firearm on or between September 1st and November 20th. 
A judge sealed an affidavit in the case detailing the allegations, and Eichmann declined to give details, but a week after he filed the charge, Lincoln police publicly said they were looking for Trail and Boswell in connection with Luth's disappearance. Eichmann said Wednesday, there are a number of things about the case that don't fit the traditional model where a person is arrested, charged, and in front of a judge within two days. It was important for us to get Trail in custody, he said. Now, with additional developments, Eichmann said he's looking at the possibility of amending the complaint to add charges. As for the warrant on the gun charge, Trail hasn't yet been served with the warrant or given a date to appear on the charge, he said. Similarly, Lincoln City Attorney Jeff Kirkpatrick said he hasn't made any efforts to bring Boswell back to Lincoln, where she's wanted for failing to appear last year on two infractions for possession of drug paraphernalia and less than one ounce of marijuana. If Boswell satisfies investigators that she's no longer a person of interest and is released from Selmaine County, only then might she be brought back to Lincoln. We wouldn't want to go down to Missouri ordinarily, Kirkpatrick said. Here, the federal warrant meant it didn't come down to a question of whether to extradite. Jan Sharp, a spokesman with the U.S. Attorney's Office for Nebraska, said in general, someone may be taken into federal custody on an arrest affidavit supported by probable cause or a warrant issued by a federal judge, or someone may be detained as a material witness with a judge's permission. Under each of these scenarios, the detained person has certain rights to include the right to a prompt presentment in court and the right to be represented by counsel. Of course, those rights, like all rights, can be knowingly waived by the person detained, Sharp said. Well, thank you to Matt McGrath for reading those articles that you just heard, and we'll have links to them in the show notes. Now, after this quick break, you'll hear the interview that I recorded last week with Dave Bundy and Todd Henricks of the Lincoln Journal Star. So, I mean, we can start with introductions. Dave Bundy, you are the, the editor. Editor at the Journal Star, yeah. And we've got Todd Henricks. Correct, yes. And I'm the city editor. And, uh, and both you guys had been involved for a while at the Journal before 2017 when all this happened. Yeah, both long timers. So what was it, what was it like when news of this sort comes down? Because I mean, all it is really at first is a like a missing persons thing, and you don't really know if that's going to end up turning into anything or something like this, where it not only turned into something, but turned into a pretty big something and pretty quickly. How did you guys mobilize the process of of covering that and handing out the the coverage to reporters and all that? Todd, I think you probably ought to take the lead on these because you were, you know, you were out sitting in the newsroom watching it go from a missing persons report to something much darker. Yeah, we uh, we hear about a lot of missing persons cases, and generally we get indications from various different angles, I guess you might say, that lead us to believe that something more is is going on or there's or this is going to uh, uh, lead us to a different uh, story. So in this case, fairly quickly, we got some indications in trying to contact family members or hearing from family members who reached out to us or friends 
who reached out to us that led us to believe that you know something bad had had happened here and this wasn't just a case of somebody who had uh, uh, left town perhaps uh, on their own volition. So we were we were attempting to stay in contact with those friends, with those family members, uh, with anyone we could to try to find out exactly what was going on. The story took several interesting turns, as I'm sure is clear from anyone who's followed the story, that when the persons of interest were identified in terms of who the police were trying to contact to learn more about what had happened to Sydney. That's where the, the story sort of went to a, uh, another, uh, you know, kind of almost hard to fathom level as we were, we were trying to track the whereabouts of these persons of interest who were out there on social media telling uh, uh, in some ways uh, the world that they weren't the, the, the persons of interest. And it certainly did make for some unusual discussions as to how we, how we report on those things, how we follow up on those things, how we verify those things. So yeah, from the very early stages, it was not your typical story. One of the things that struck me, you know, from a distance as the editor, I got an office off to the side, but I've become adept at eavesdropping. And the first phone calls from Aubrey Trail, I mean, were really got everybody's attention. I mean, in a newsroom, you overhear your neighbor in the next cubicle and People collaborate on stories informally. They'll just throw out a question to the room. And in this case, this was a story that everybody in the newsroom was listening to play out. And when Aubrey Trail called, you know, everybody else gets kind of quiet and listens to the reporter's end of what's going on. And it was, it was just an unusual and emotional story. And um, you know, any missing persons thing is a, it's something that creates some buzz. I mean, if, if it goes beyond the, you know, those first few hours, it's when most of them get, get solved or resolved one way or another. And in this case, you know, the tension built, we had contact with, uh, you know, a person of interest and it just, you know, people in the newsroom, everybody was kind of paying attention to it. it it elevated the story just in terms of everybody's interest. And newsrooms are full of people who can be jaded. I mean, we, we, we listen to stories about bad things happening to people all the time. And, but it's rare that you get the kind of window that our folks did on this story as it happened. Do you remember how the, the Facebook post that Aubrey Trail and Bailey Boswell made was brought to your attention and then follow up to that would be what was the the time frame i guess between that being posted and them being announced as persons of interest then starting to call in or i guess trail specifically did you guys have any conversations with boswell or was it just trail aubrey was i believe the only person who contacted us and i don't believe we had any direct contact with him prior to 
the arrest in, uh, I believe they were taken in custody in Missouri and brought back to Nebraska on some really unrelated federal charges. I think it was like passing bad checks or some kind of... Yeah, related to his selling of antiques, yeah. So we first started hearing from Aubrey when he was being held in the jail in Wilbur, I believe, uh, which is where federal, he was being held on a federal warrant at that point. And so that's when we started hearing from him. And I don't believe that we, Bailey did not reach out to us. And obviously we made attempts to reach out to her, but I don't think she ever called us. Going back to those Facebook posts, I'm, I'm really trying to remember in my mind exactly how that all went down. It was such a, uh, as you might imagine, uh, one unbelievable thing after another. And we were made aware of some of those Facebook posts, primarily in the same way we hear about a lot of things, which is somebody spies it uh, out in the social media world and shares it before we've even had a chance to see it, but it was all happening very quickly. And as you said, there was at that time then a lot of questions about, okay, what's the authenticity? What do we do with this? Or what is this? What do we do with it? How do we verify it? All those questions immediately came up and we were making a lot of decisions fairly rapidly related to those things because it was it had grown into a story of high interest, and these oddities of the story were only building the interest in the story. And I think there was, I mean, there was a lot of concern on our part between, you know, the reader's appetite for the story and the strangeness of it, and having respect for the, the family and the friends and the community. That was a pretty important part of the discussions because you know, as local journalists, you know, we, we, you know, I don't know if we had any Wilbur natives on the staff at the time, but it's still a small community in, in this area. And we, uh, and, you know, we were working with the police here in Lincoln. So we, we just, we needed to tread very thoughtfully. Was the family involved? I mean, there's a lot of quotes from them and after a certain point, it becomes less about the family and more about the trial and, and the, the, the criminals themselves, Trail and Boswell. You know, are, are you still staying in contact with the family at that point? Or, I mean, that might be more of a question for uh, the reporters as opposed to, you know, the, the editors. But, you know, were these things that were coming up in, you know, meetings you were having and the uh, interactions you were having with the reporters? In the very early stages, the local police department as they do in some missing persons cases, they were having family members speak publicly in briefings for the media to try to get the word out that uh, their daughter, in this case, it, it was Sydney's uh, parents, and they were asking for the public's help to find their daughter or to get information about their daughter's whereabouts. And so the parents were largely only communicating through the official police channels. We did have some contact 
with friends and family members who we were talking to uh, independent from those briefings in our attempt to try to learn more about Sydney and to be able to share her story, but also to give readers or to help in the process of trying to find out what happened to her, because at that point, none of this was immediately clear. We did have some contacts with Sydney's parents throughout the process. They did not want to be uh, speak publicly once things got to the trial phase and withheld their comments until after the end of the trial. And we did speak with some uh, of those friends and family throughout and uh, were able to you know, find out some more things and to tell more of the story of Sydney's life throughout that process. All stories like this kind of have an arc, and the family was very helpful in us coming to understand, to get to know Sydney. And then I think it was fairly natural at a certain point, you had particularly Aubrey Trail, but you know, he, he talked a lot and was a very, uh, it was a hard, he was a hard presence to ignore. Bailey Boswell stayed kind of a, a, a bit more of a mystery but at a certain point, they were going to become kind of the central figures in this. And that's when I think the, you know, the family rightfully uh, decided to, to be quiet and let the system do its work. And you know, they opened up again at the conclusion of it. But they were very helpful in painting the picture of this person that we lost. So, I mean, you mentioned the the calls that Arbitrail Trail was making, both the ones that you would just call in. And then I know there were others where, you know, reporters were talking directly to him in, you know, scheduled interview type situations over the course of everything as he was getting, you know, plea deals and other things were dangled in front of him. And when he was trying to take all of the blame and, you know, remove the death penalty from Bailey. What are the considerations that go into to handling that kind of stuff? I mean, I've you've you know given me access to some of the audio of these recordings that I know that aspects of were reported on in the paper, but he's just such a profoundly untrustworthy narrator. And at no point did it seem like he really was trying to give any kind of closure or had that information even, even though he clearly was was there. So how do you balance what to cover and what to, you know, not treat as newsworthy? Because there is obviously an aspect of it that's newsworthy, but there's a lot of it that's just hot air. Yeah, I would say the majority of the phone calls that we received, well, Speaking specifically about the phone calls we received from Aubrey, all of them were unscheduled and spontaneous. And as a result, we knew that everything he was telling us was, was pretty much on his terms and, and that he, he had an agenda. Well, he wasn't calling us just to, uh, just to shoot the breeze. He was calling us with, with, uh, for some reason. And you know, we, we, of course, were not going to not talk to him. It certainly was important for us to have an opportunity to hear from him and 
I think in the process, we learned some things about him that we might not have otherwise known or would not have known until the court case fully developed. Uh, but but we were we were very leery in how we told our readers that that he was contacting us, let alone what he was telling us and why he was telling it. Because as you said, there's a lot of question surrounding the validity of of what he was telling us, and certainly it was all on his agenda. Uh, we, in some cases he was willing to be questioned uh, or have questions bounce back off of him. But again, we had to gauge what we were going to do with that information. And in a lot of cases, we held on to it as just information that we weren't going to share with readers right away. Have either of you experienced something like this in your you know, years as, as journalists and, you know, in, in the industry of a perpetrator or convicted criminal or someone on trial attempting to, to use the media and, I mean, kind of play certain establishments off of each other to a degree. I mean, is that at all anything that, that, that you've encountered in the past? I think we're far more used to people hiding from our reporters than seeking them <laughs> out. Um, but uh, so yeah, in that respect, in that respect, this was a really unusual circumstance. And, you know, Todd, I can't remember, we were having original conversations with him. I, I don't recall whether law enforcement ever reached out to us to ask about any recordings we have. I know that they've done that in some other cases, but I don't recall dealing with that in, in this one. He probably talked all he needed to them too, so... I think as we went along, we did learn that he was the same kind of person talking to us as he was talking to them. They certainly were interested to know if we had talked to him, but they did not, as I'm aware, ever ask us for details of what was said on those conversations. And as far as uniqueness goes, I certainly can't remember a case like that, or a trial defendant like Aubrey Trail was, in which he was calculating in the ways that he wanted to communicate with us and share whatever details he wanted to share. And it's uh, just another layer of the, of the bizarreness, to a degree, where he clearly was trying to control some, some degree of the narrative, but didn't seem to really have any idea of what the narrative was that he was trying to control? I think, I mean, when it ends in a death penalty, he obviously didn't really manipulate us or the system the way he might have intended. It sounds like once the, the sentencing was starting to come down, you know, it was basically him just trying to get as minimal a sentence as possible for Bailey and take all of it on him. I mean, to the point where, I mean, I know he's basically said after the fact that he just wishes that he could be put to death as soon as possible and not, you know, exist in, in the system any longer than he needs to, which is a whole other conversation about the triggering appeals and the legal aspects of it. And the fact that we have no drugs to execute someone with either. So. Yeah. And the question we were asking throughout, you know, was, how much of this was Aubrey Trail wanting to be in the news, wanting to be 
wanting to get attention, draw attention, uh, keep attention focused on him or something related to him. And what was the root of that? I mean, was, was this just a person who was craving attention or was there a true agenda behind what he was trying to get attention for? And, you know, those were hard things for us to deal with. And, and I believe, you know, there were times where we took some criticism for the attention that we were giving him. And so that was all happening while we were trying to be very mindful of that throughout the process. This was a case where our coverage was under a spotlight. We were trying to be sensitive and putting out a news product, a website, a newspaper is an inexact science. And we spend a lot of time every day talking about how to do it in the most responsible and responsive way. And uh, there were a lot of conversations and and yet we heard from plenty of people, this was too much, you're, you're giving him a platform. And yet every, you know, every word we wrote, people were interested in. You know, what? at what point does it cross over into not being newsworthy and just being salacious? And it's a, it's a tough call. And like you said, I mean, it's a inexact science, but it's one that allows for retractions and, you know, just talking about the complexities of it. I mean, in the end, Todd, I think we would probably say we didn't have any very serious missteps. I don't think that we, we jumped the gun with anything. You know, everything you do is open to some level of criticism, but I don't think we had anything that would qualify as a seriously credibility damaging error. We built our way pretty carefully. I don't think in any cases we were caught off guard by the criticism. We, I mean, we knew that there was going to be that. We also felt comfortable with the way we had handled the story to that point and felt like we had properly handled the story. But it was a new one. I mean, certainly for us as editors, it was new territory. For the reporters, it was very new territory. And for them, it was very unsettling. And, you know, we were trying to make sure they were comfortable with the situations they were being put into, which was to take these phone calls and have these conversations with Aubrey, while at the same time trying to communicate with family of Sydney and balance all of that and be fair in their reporting. It was a big load on them. And, and we certainly recognized that throughout the process. You know, thinking about it from the standpoint of Riley Johnson or Lori Pilger, they're covering other stories as well. You know, both of them had other court cases, daily rounds to check up on, brief stories, other parts of their beats to cover. And you're sitting at your desk working on another story focused on that. And all of a sudden your phone rings and it's a suspect in a first degree murder case calling you from jail. It's a, it's a dramatic moment and you you got to be on really fast. And that's, uh, it was to both of their credits, they managed to get through that. Yeah, I mean, I can remember taking a couple of those calls because 
what Aubrey would do is he would he would try their personal lines or their their personal lines first. If he if he didn't get an answer there, he would call the main newsroom line and then and then ask for one of them. And I think I probably answered two or three of those. You learn to recognize his voice fairly quickly in the process. But then it would be a case of trying to identify, okay, is somebody here in the newsroom available to take that call? So yeah, it was, like I said, we've never gone through anything quite like it. I mean, hopefully you won't have to go through something like that ever again. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Todd, for your time and, and all the work you guys put in over there. Well, thank you, Chris. Talk to you later. Hey, Chris. Well, that's it for this episode. And thank you so much for listening but make sure that you're subscribed on your podcast player of choice because we'll be back next week with reports from the trials of Aubrey Trail and Bailey Boswell, which, even though they did end with convictions, arguably created more questions than they answered. We'll have links in the show notes to all the articles that we talked about, along with contact info. Late edition Crime Beat Chronicles, a product of Lee Enterprises, is produced, recorded, edited, and hosted by myself, Chris Lay, with articles read and recorded by Matt McGrath. As always, if you appreciate what we're doing with this program, or like I said, literally any other true crime podcast that you might listen to, we encourage you to invest in local journalism and support whichever newspaper it is that serves your community. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.